Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast brought to you by Raptor Aid and hosted by me, Jimmy Hill. During the coronavirus lockdown, we decided to host some live interviews with raptor conservationists and experts from all over the world. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded during the lockdown period live on Facebook. Apologies if some of it sounds a little bit disjointed and we go a little bit off track with questions from the audience, but hopefully you'll enjoy listening to your favourite expert right here on Raptor Rambles. In this interview, we chat to Dr. Kathleen Thomas, former RSPB employee where she headed up their Hen Harrier Life Project. Now, the Hen Harrier, for those of you that don't know, is one of the rarest breeding birds of prey in the UK. And Kathleen's job on the project was critical. It's absolutely fantastic of Kathleen to take the time to chat to us and explain about her role in protecting one of the rarest birds of prey in the UK. But equally, what I found fantastic about this interview was how open Kathleen was about being a female trying to find her way in the world of conservation. So thank you very much Kathleen for being so open and honest during this interview. Right, okay, so we should be live now. Um, Right, okay, thank you very much Dr Kathleen Thomas. Kathleen, thank you for joining us, coming on to Raptor Aid. I know it's not your natural habitat, this, uh, and uh, we really appreciate you. And I have to make an apology, obviously, me referring to you as as RSPB. Um, obviously, you, you, I didn't realise you're not at the RSPB anymore, so apologies for that, but we can come on to that anyway. So anyway, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> Don't worry, this won't be this won't be too painful. I'm sure of it. So we all, I always start with, um, before we get onto hen harriers and all things regarding the life project. I always like to ask the person I'm talking to to tell us a bit about their background. And in fact, we've just been talking for half an hour, probably, which would would have made a great half an hour to the start of the start of the interview. Because, yeah, what you were saying was absolutely spot on. And it's exactly the sort of information that that I think people need to know regarding getting jobs in conservation. So you can start by all means, start with where your passion for the natural world came from. And don't feel you have to stick within the parameters of birds of prey. And then, yeah, talk about, you know, going into your, your education, PhD and then career wise. So over to you. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. So it's a it's a bit of a long story how I ended up working with raptors. Um, so yeah, just um, let me know if you get bored and I'll stop. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess I've always been interested in the natural world. So I was I was quite lucky that we had a, a, quite a big garden um, in the house that I grew up in, so I could play out in the garden. I remember playing with you know insects and things, um, and I think actually quite a lot of my early experiences with animals came through captive populations. Um, so we had uh, so we had the a wild farm wetlands trust nearby, um, so we spent quite a lot of time there. Um, and I still have a deep distrust of swans after being uh, trying to feed the birds and being pecked by a swan, and I still don't like them now. Um, just to stay away from them uh, is pretty much my my mo. Um, but yeah, so I think um, in terms of bir- birds, it was it was very much captive things. Um, my grandparents lived in North Wales, so we would go to the Welsh Mountain Zoo, and I would see you know all kinds of exotic species there, and they had condors and and all sorts of things. Um, and then I, I guess going to things like county shows and seeing you know inevitably there'd be a falconer there with with a collection of birds of prey, um, and so I you know I always um, I always liked them. I think I. I quite like seeing the owls um, of, of various species, um, but I'm aware. So I think I think initially my experience was quite exotic, but in a home setting. So it was, you know, exotic species, but not in the places that they lived. So I guess it was a bit a bit strange, really. Um, I mean, I remember at, um, at primary school, there was a. I remember sitting in the library and we had this like one TV in a, in a big box with like a roller shutter door and they rolled it up and it was very exciting when the TV got wheeled out and a video would come on. Um, and we had this look and read uh, program that had been, I think it was filmed in the 70s. Um, and it was basically to teach us to read, but the story of it was all about peregrine falcons. Um, and so essentially it was these kids discovering this like crime ring with this guy who was fencing peregrine falcons. 
Um, and, and even now, I always, whenever I think of peregrines, I just think, oh, well, they're really endangered, aren't they? And, you know, and that, that was kind of the message that I took from it. Um, and it's quite interesting. So I guess, yeah, I would have been sort of upper primary school, maybe eight, nine years old. Um, and, and there was an RSPB investigations officer in the, who was part of the, the story. Um, so I guess it's, yeah, it's kind of funny to have sort of come out of the circle and end up in the, working in the investigations team for a little bit. Um, yeah. So that's, yeah, some of my early experiences, I guess, were quite, quite strange. Um, and then, I, yeah, I mean, so the, the school that I went to, um, you know, when I, I went to comprehensive school and there weren't any, uh, so we only had one, one sixth form in the area. Um, so I had to go into town to go to sort of to go to college to do A levels. So I think I always there was always that expectation that I would go to university. Um, but even when I started A levels, I knew so I knew I had this kind of love of the natural world, but um, was very much torn between a few different subjects. And in the end, went with biology and then um, studied biology at university as well. Um, and that's when I started doing kind of field trips and things and getting to see a bit more of. The natural world um, and I think and even then I didn't really know what I wanted to do except that I, I wanted to do something in biology um, I did a it's in my third year at uni I did an industrial placement and I actually worked, worked for the government for a year on um, developing methods for detecting uh, genetically modified plants um, so I worked with a team that would test so when when you get your shipments of kind of plants coming in um, they would just do DNA testing to make sure none of it was genetically modified because obviously it's not or wasn't um, legal in this country and that, I think that was when I first started getting into science really and realized that actually it was a job um, and that it was something that you could do because I think up until that point I just thought it was something you studied at, at school really um, so I kind of then went down a bit of a route of so I got really into like the DNA stuff um, did a master's and a and yeah ended up doing a PhD on on ladybirds. So I guess I'm actually I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm I think I'm actually an entomologist rather than a a true raptor worker just yet. Um, but we'll yeah we'll come on to that. Um, so yeah that that was really interesting. So I spent four years um, investigating uh, invasive species. Um, so I was working yeah. on on ladybirds. Um, so there was this ladybird species that was native to, to Asia that had been brought over to Europe and, and America for kind of pest control. Um, and I was really looking at where it had come from and why it had been successful at being an invasive species. Um, and I really enjoyed, you know, my PhD. I mean, the reason I, I did it because I wanted to, you know, I'm, I like learning and I wanted to study more. And for me, it was more like vocational training kind of is how I approached it. Um, so getting all kinds of skills um, and I think so during the course of that I started doing a bit of teaching as well, um, teaching undergraduates, um, started doing a bit of kind of communication work, working with the public, talking about, you know, because ladybirds are such a captivating species, everybody likes them, you know, they might not, you know, there's plenty of insects people don't really like, um, but ladybirds seem to have a bit of a get out of jail free card. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of interesting things we could do there. Um, and I think that's that's where I, yeah, I just learned such a huge range of skills um, doing that. And kind of, yeah, wanted to stay in science, but there just weren't, weren't the opportunities. So um, yeah, applied for lots and lots of different roles. Didn't, didn't really get anywhere with any of them. Um, ended up moving back home and, and starting, you know, a zero hours contract minimum wage uh, job kind of thing which um was a bit of a shock I have to say because you know they kind of you kind of get led to believe that if you do a PhD you know it's going to bring you out in a good place in the job market and you know um graduate salaries and all the rest of it so I think I hit the ground with a bit of a bump um coming out of that um yeah. but then you know and and then went into science communication a bit more and, and education um which again you know was a really good really good preparation for, for, you know, especially for the Hen Harrier project, learning to speak to groups of, of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, so I used to, yeah, I used to work in a science centre. Um, I used to have to do uh, stage shows, which was, you know, incredibly uncomfortable for me because I'm not particularly an outgoing person. Um, so having to kind of command a stage and we'd be doing all sorts of weird demonstrations and 
you know, throwing like plastic pigs across the stage and like catapulting them to show people, you know, to teach the kids about like forces and, and all sorts yeah. of different yeah. things. And we did this thing where, <clears throat> so you put like bubble mix on a kid's hand and then you would set fire to it and the bubbles would kind of, you know, would sort of evaporate. And the, so you would do all kinds of like really risky stuff as well. Um, but I mean, obviously, you know, we've been fully trained and everything. Um, so I guess, yeah, doing things like that. <laughs> no kid died during the Oh, no, no, show, no, so kid no, no, because they, so you wet their hand first. So the only thing that's going to happen yeah. is the heat would just evaporate the water off their hand um, before it, before yeah. anything else. But yeah, it's just, so I guess, yeah, that was a pretty good training ground for being quite far outside my comfort zone and having to do difficult things in front of an audience. Um, and then, and yeah, and, and working with kids, I mean, you never know what they're going to do or what they're going to say. So you've got to be on your toes because um, they're quite unpredictable. Um, yeah. And then, so that, that was kind of, so that's quite long-winded, but that's kind of where I got to just before I joined, officially got a job in conservation. Um, so that, that was how I got into it really, was through the kind of the, the community events, communication side of it. So my first role um, was, was a community events officer. So I would um, plan out the program of what we were going to do, um, just doing, you know, kind of standard things like bug hunts and pond dipping and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And doing, yeah, all sorts of different different things to engage children and adults just with, with the natural world. Um, so it was, and it, and it was, yeah, across all the species groups. Because um, I think, yeah, I guess maybe there's, there's kind of two different ways you can go about it. You can either get really really into a specific thing and you can become a, an expert on a particular species and just know everything about that species and monitor it and, and all the rest of it but I kind of well whether it was purposefully or not I kind of went the other way and just got a, a really broad experience in lots of different things and working with lots of different groups and um, you know groups of species um, and things like that so but so my first job in conservation, it was, so initially I was hired 12 months, 12 month contract. So I knew that, um, you know, I hadn't, I'd, I'd kind of got a foot in the door, but it wasn't all the way in yet. Um, so I, and I guess yeah. because I, because I was keen on developing that kind of broad um, background. So I was doing lots of other things. So I was at one point, so I was studying, uh, so I had my full-time job, I was studying part-time, um, but then I was also um, working other jobs to try and get experience and to pay the bills. Um, so yeah, I think at one point I'd like five different jobs and part-time study on top of it, which I'm not really sure how I managed to squeeze everything in. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's just, I just kind of thought, you know, something's got to come off, event, you know, eventually. Um, one of these avenues has got to get me to where I need to be. And I think, you know, if you, a lot of it, it is about, who you know in the industry and and them you know I, I've watched some of your previous talks you know with people like Brian and Ruth who have just as I mean I'm not you know they're, they're both incredibly talented people but I think some of you know some of it for all of us is just being in the right place at the right time and you know and knowing the right person and and things happening at the right time for you um so yeah I was kind of hoping that if I just worked really hard I would eventually something would would happen um, so that first role, so I, yeah, doing the event, so I got extended by another year, um, but I was a bit frustrated with that, I think, really, because it's not, it's not a very easy way to live, um, you know, when you're dependent on that income to live on, and you don't know from one year to the next, whether it's yeah. going to be there, it's, it was quite tricky. Um, so yeah, so after that, I um, kind of got into project management, um, which uh, yeah, which I really, I really enjoy, actually, and I think it kind of suited my, my broad range of skills, um, because I think, yeah, when you're a project manager, you have to be able to pick up lots of different things um, very quickly, um, yeah. so I started off, um, yeah, managing a big national um, conservation project, so it was, I kind of think of uh, a project manager, I'm kind of just like a professional nagger, um, so the you know the project teams have so they've gone to a funder and they've said right look we want to do this and this is how we're going to do it they get the funding and then they give it to somebody like me who says well have you done that yet have you done that yet have you done that yet and just kind of keeps you know keeps them 
pushing towards so that they can, you know, they can achieve the thing that they were going to do. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, so I, I'd done a little bit um, of project management work before I came to the Hen Harrier project. And then I, do, I think, to be honest, I don't think I really understood what I was getting into fully when I joined the Hen Harrier project. Um, so, I mean, yeah, really for me, as I say, aside from kind of captive populations, that was my first um, experience of raptors. So all I knew, I mean, yeah. obviously going into the interview, I'd done, I'd done some research about hen harriers and where they live and picked up on some of the political issues. Um, yeah. But up until that point, all I'd really, the only experience I'd had of hen harriers was, um, you know, when all that stuff happened uh, with Prince Harry and his friend who had allegedly been in the area yeah, when yeah. some birds happened. When was shot. Yeah. Potentially, allegedly, yeah, been shot. Uh, yeah, so I mean that that was the only, and even then I didn't really, you know, you kind of read it, and I don't think obviously, you know, it hadn't the full sort of weight of that hadn't really hit home. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I was lucky enough that um, the people on the interview panel thought that I was all right and that I might be able to do the job. Um, so because I, I remember actually in the interview they did ask, um, you know, what would you do if if uh, somebody started asking you really difficult questions, or you know you you were in a meeting and um somebody started like you know being really difficult and, and pushing you about hen harriers and saying that you know things were fine as they were and I remember kind of saying well you know well I'd just take them outside and um and then I was like no no, but I don't mean like I'd take them outside and beat them up I was like you know you take them outside <laughs> and kind of chat to them and you know talk it through so I think I yeah maybe I just sort of naively I guess that yeah I got on I thought I got on all right with the the people on the panel um and yeah so they they let me in um and yeah and then it kind of kind of went from there i guess and then yeah so well, I, I tell I, you what let's let's let me interrupt only because i want we'll we'll talk about the hen harrier project in a second yeah um, and and the ins and outs of it i just want to go back because i think people will be really interested in in some of the things we talked about before we came on air um certainly anyone who's watching this who's potentially going to be, they're a graduate or they're in a similar position as you so going back to the PhD obviously you, you, yeah. you said you landed with a bump when you got your PhD Do, looking back now with all the experience because you've got clearly you've got an incredible amount of experience in, in these different areas of different areas of conservation and working for organizations do you still think that the the PhD was important being Dr Kathleen Thomas or do you think you'd have still managed to have made your way without it does it it's yeah that's something I've reflected on quite a lot I think the short answer I think is yes I think it's open doors that maybe wouldn't have been open otherwise I think especially as a young woman I think it gives you a little bit of gravitas but I think if that, I, I don't think that's a reason to do one though. I think, you know, yeah. there are plenty of, you know, clever, educated, you know, people that are good at their job that don't have that bit of paper. And I don't think it's a requirement, um, especially now. I mean, I think, you know, one of my, I, I kind of reflect because, because I do like learning and I have got a ridiculous number of degrees. Um, and, I, you know, I'm always thinking, oh, I'd like to go and do this course and do that. And, um, but I think, you know, would I advise now, would I advise an 18 year old to sign up to uni if they want to get into conservation? And I'm not sure I would, to be honest. I think okay. I think maybe back when I did it and I mean, and even when I did it, the, the job market was quite uncertain. Um, and I think, yeah, we're, we're in this weird period where, yeah, maybe in the past you could have got a job, you know, you would have come out of uni, you would have got a job. Um, and that was kind of it. And, you know, when you get your gold watch on retirement and you've done your however many decades, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think now and, and you know, and I, I see it in conservation because, you know, I've worked for a few different organisations in conservation and you do start to see the same people and you just, oh, who are you working for now? And, you know, and so I think it's yeah, we, we were kind of saying before, weren't we? I think for me, it's well, someone, a good friend of mine told me that it's not it's not a job to us and that's why we do it. it it's who we are as people it's not just that we work for this organization and that's what we do it's just you know fighting for for animals and you know trying to protect wildlife um and the environment it's just who we are and it's just what we want to yeah. do um, yeah. so it's yeah. yeah it just is 
yeah is something that that we are passionate about and we try and do it however we can so yeah I mean the whole yeah the whole university thing I think for me is a difficult one I I think I have I have benefited from it but I think there were costs you know huge huge costs to it as well um yeah. so yeah I don't know how many you mentioned something then how, so you mentioned something about degrees yeah. how many have you done more than one then I've got a push on that five five yeah yeah Fantas wow right list all we've got a listen to all five then this is fantastic well, biology obviously yeah so i did my undergrad at durham um which was brilliant so i just did um i did broad biology and it was fantastic because i got to see the whole realm of the subject you know from cell biology mm -hmm. right through to kind of ecosystems and it i mean it was bloody hard because it was you know it was durham and you don't get a free ride there um, yeah. But I was, I was quite proud of myself by the time I'd scraped through at the end and I was sort of, you know, sitting there alongside everybody else who'd been to private school and what have you and, you know, and I was there with, with just as good a degree as them, but um, I just had to work a lot harder for it maybe. Um, yeah, so I did that and then I went to Bangor to do a Masters in Ecology. Um, so at the yeah. time, so that, that Masters course had been running about 40 years, I think, so it's a really well-known um, ecology course. Um, they don't do it anymore, which is a real shame because, again, it was really good at, so it was part taught, part research, um, but we also got a trip to the Caribbean in the middle, which was brilliant. Very, very um, nice. I know, yeah, well, it was the first time, one of the, because I, I hadn't really been abroad, you know, as a kid, it wasn't something that we did, um, yeah. certainly not as far as the Caribbean. Um, and, and so really, it's only, ironically, it's only through working in biology that I've been on these huge traveled these huge distances by airplane and, and probably polluted the environment but um but anyway yeah, i had a great time in the we were out in the caribbean for a couple of weeks monitoring lizards and uh yeah looking at the the trees and learn about all the different habitats um so yeah that was really good um and then i went into my phd um at hull yep. so that was yeah ladybirds uh work and then also oh, while, while i was doing the phd they also make you do like a postgraduate training course alongside it um so i did uh, i did a bit of japanese so i did three modules of uh japanese and then you do all sorts of other things that you would normally do around um like you know presenting papers doing presentations it was kind of a health and safety aspect kind of more standard expected stuff um so that's four and then oh and then so then when i as i say when i came out i got a bit more into the education side of things but I was finding, so then I was trying to get an education officer type role and I just couldn't yeah. get put in because I think there's a lot of people, I, I knew I didn't want to be a school teacher, but I quite like outdoor education and, you know, that kind of learning outside the classroom aspect. Um, and I just felt that because I didn't have the piece of paper that said that I could do education, I was really struggling. And I, and I did find that, so once I had that piece of paper, um, that helped open doors and then I was getting the interviews at least um, so yeah I don't know I guess I was trying to find I mean I do enjoy learning and as I say even now I kind of sit there and I'm I know like with because we're all on lockdown there's all this this pressure to be like extra productive and are you learning 12 languages and have you done a new whatever and <laughs> all of this and you're homeschooling your kids and you're doing whatever and so I, I started, um, so the Animal Law Society have been doing some, some talks about animal law that I started listening to. And I was like, obviously with all the hen harrier stuff, I was like, mm, it might be quite interesting to know a bit more about the law. But I think I, yeah, park that one for a little bit. And just, uh, I mean, I'm only, I'm only, I, was, I only shouted five there, not because I don't think, you know, anyone, but I'm think, I, I didn't do it. I didn't do an undergrad, you see. I was rubbish yeah. in school and, and I was just, I didn't want to, I just, wanted to be outside and playing football yeah. and all that anyway and so i did a master's yeah two years ago um just straight off i went in to do a master's my parents nearly fainted you know my brother said you'll just mess it up because he was the brainy one anyway so yeah that's and I, now i'm umming and ahhing about doing a phd because there's a project that i'm really interested in yeah. So then when someone says, and I'm really opening and ahhing about giving up three years of my life to a bit, but then when, so when I hear someone who's done five, I'm like, that's, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think, applause. That's I think, but in terms of the PhD, I think, you know, I've said, 
yeah, get into it for the right reasons. If you're doing it for the right reasons, which is that you're interested in the topic and yeah. you want to know more about it, because actually having the opportunity to get completely immersed in a topic that you really enjoy, which you've probably found during your master's as well, is just that yeah. bit of time to, to really just concentrate on it. I think, you know, that's really nice to do. And, and there isn't, there aren't other opportunities, you know, to, to do that. So I think, you know, if that's why you're getting into it, then, then that's, you know, the good, a good reason to do it. Not because don't do it because you want to be able to put doctor on your credit card because that doesn't get you anything. No. <laughs> well, exactly. My brother did a PhD and yeah, I just, he just gets wound up about it now. It doesn't yeah, yeah. really. So, uh, yeah. It's like sometimes you're quite apologetic about, or I just don't tell people because it's yeah. almost like they just kind of look at you and it's like, but you know, and, and I guess because I maybe don't fit the mold of like what people think somebody with a PhD looks like because I talk with an accent and you know and all the rest of it that they sort of think you you know when you think of somebody with a PhD or I, I even still think of you know a kind of a Cambridge graduate and you know somebody who's quite middle yeah. class and quite posh and it's not yeah. always the case they let anybody in really. So. Yeah, that's what, funnily enough, that's what my brother said about my master's. He was like, Jimmy, they'll let anyone do a master's. They'll just take your money and fail you. And I was like, yeah, cheers, D, for the yeah. vote confidence. There. But anyway, <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah, that's my brother. Um, so uh, let answer another question then that came from what you were saying earlier. Being a female, have you found that has been has that held you back it shouldn't but obviously did it or I think I think I've certainly been aware of it I mean it's hard to know it's hard to objectively view your own experience I think but I mean I've certainly been aware you know whenever I sit down and, and now I'm more aware of actually saying something or doing something about it when you you know if you go to um, and, and I think the public are more aware of it as well. You know, if you sit down and there's some kind of panel discussion and there are no women on it, or, you know, you're looking at your senior management team and there are no women on there, um, then you kind of, yeah, it, it kind of makes you think, well, you know, what what are my prospects, you know, for the future? Um, so I, I think it, I've certainly found it interesting. And, and I think, yeah, there, there's, there's a massive element of luck as well in terms of what roles you get offered. Um, and I think, you know, you've just got to keep trying. And it is hard. And, you know, and I, I say I was listening to um, Brian's talk and Ruth's, uh, you know, when they were chatting to you, and they were kind of like, oh, you know, we were just kind of looking in the right place at the right time. And they've never really done interviews and all the rest of it. And I have lost count of the number of job interviews I've had. Um, that have been unsuccessful and you know and I think that's something people don't talk about as well is just how how hard it is to get in and you've just got to keep trying and and I think as well you know I'm aware that so if you have a job description there's a lot of so there's a lot of research around you know people applying for jobs and you know looking at CVs if you look at a CV and it's got a man's name on the top it somehow seems to do better than the exact same CV with a woman's name on the top um, so I went through a period where I would just put C on the top of it rather, you know, C Thomas rather than putting my full name because I thought, well, you know, is that part of it? Um, so and, and I think, you know, that there's all sorts of research that in a job description. So if a guy reads a job description and there might be one thing on there he can do and he'll think, well, I'll go for it. Whereas if a woman reads it, there'll be one thing on there she can't do and she'll think, oh, well, I can't even apply because there's one thing I can't do. And I mean, you know, and I know that's very, gen, you know, generalising, but I think it's certainly helped me approach things a bit differently and, and sort of think, well, actually, you know, because it's hard because applying for jobs, it does take a lot of time. And, you know, and even now when I'm, you know, because obviously we'll, we'll come on to the project, but my, you know, my role in the project ended and a lot of work in, in conservation is short term contracts. So you're constantly updating your CV, you're constantly reflecting on what you've learned, pushing yourself forward. Um, so I think, you know, I've, I've tried to look at, um, you know, what, what I can do or say or how to frame things to see if that helps. I mean, I, I, I it's hard because there isn't there is that element of bitterness, especially when you've seen like a job that you would really love to do and you haven't got it. Um, you know, there is an element of bitterness of like, well, who did get it and what have they got that I haven't kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, and you do start looking at it and, and you, you know, you sort of beat yourself up about it. And it, it can be quite, you know, it's incredibly difficult to pick yourself back up and, and just keep going. But that's what you've, you know, what you've got to do. And as I say, I think 
for me, I think there has been an element of luck, but I think you can kind of create opportunities for luck to happen in terms of, you know, there's, so there's a good, uh, a good Geordie saying that shy burns getting out, which is basically like, you know, if you don't ask, you won't get. Um, so if you don't put yourself forward for something, nobody's going to come over to you and go, oh, I've seen this job, you know, do you think you might be interested? You've just got to go for it and it might work, it might not. Um, but yeah, I think you've just got to, you've just got to keep trying really. Um, I mean, yeah. It's well, I, I, I was just going to say, uh, coming back to the project, a massive testament to clearly how good you are is the fact that, you know, Raptor workers on the whole are male, really, older men. Um, you know, it's getting a lot more diverse, which is wonderful. So, you know, well done you for being able to, you know, break into into that. And I know I've, I've said to, this to you off camera, being involved with the North of England Raptor Forum to some extent, they they all we all thought very highly and and of you. So so yeah, you you're obviously doing something right, um, which is, uh, which is brilliant. So yeah, on the project. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, just touching on the Raptorworks, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it more in a minute. But yeah, it's been so actually joining the the Hen Harrier project just because because it was so high profile, um, and I didn't really know because I knew you know at the time it kind of had a couple of different project managers already, and I don't know if people were just a bit like, oh god, another one, and here's somebody else we've got to get trained and you know, what's she going to want? But actually everybody was so welcoming and, you know, and, and go into the kind of the Scottish Raptor Study Group meetings and the Northern England Raptor Forum meetings and everybody was so kind. And, and yeah, and I don't know if it was just because it was nice to just have somebody a bit different in there, somebody a bit younger or, you know, I don't know, just somebody somebody different. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think, you know, and, and even now it's, it particularly I think there are certain areas of ecology that still tend to be quite male dominated and I think you know raptor work is one of them um but I think you've just got to I think it, it's hard because I can understand why people you know if you're monitoring a species and you know that people are trying to persecute it then you don't want to be sharing with anybody where it is and you know how you're protecting it and where the nests are so I think and, you know, and a friend of mine, you know, he said he's worked in this field for decades. He grew up with some of these guys and they still they still won't share things with him. So, you know, I felt quite lucky, actually, that that people did. And I don't know, I've always just tried to to understand where people are coming from and just be um, try to try and be a nice person to work with, I think, and just um try and help them out a bit I think you know especially my experience because you know I one of the big parts of conservation that we haven't really touched on is obviously volunteering so aside from you know all of these paid roles and, and going to uni I've done a huge amount of volunteering and um, you know most people do and it, it's just it's kind of an expectation to get into this field that you'll just work for free because um, you kind of get to the point where you're like well do you know what actually I'm quite well qualified and I've got quite a lot of experience at what point am I actually going to get paid for, for some of this work um, you know and, and I haven't done exotic things you know I haven't been and worked in a cheetah sanctuary in, in Africa or you know any of that sort of exciting stuff it's just like I say you know there was a wildfire and wetlands trust so I just like went and volunteered with a few ducks and helped them out for a bit or you know wherever it is um, doing doing some local squirrel surveys, things like that. Um, so I think when, once you've been a volunteer as well, you get a better appreciation of what it's like and, you know, and, and you get good and bad managers looking after you. Um, and so I think then when you're on the other side and you're working with the volunteers, I think it, it helps as well to just have an appreciation of people have other things in their life. I mean, yeah, maybe raptor workers are, are very raptor obsessed but they do you know they do have families that they see now and then and you know and there are other they do have a small amount of other things um going yeah. on in their lives aside from their obsession um so i think it's you know it's just being being wary of that but yeah no i'm, I'm incredibly grateful to, to all of the raptor workers and i think yeah we again we might come on to this but i think i've kind of done my my raptor experiences kind of backwards because i've done the hen harrier project and now i'm trying to um so i've joined my local raptor study group took a while to get in um but yeah so hoping i mean yeah obviously i'm in in lockdown it's um it's difficult to do anything but as soon as i can i can get out i'm gonna start and we've got a few peregrines and sparrowhawks around so i'm hopefully gonna get to 
to do that so yeah kind of done things backwards a bit I think but... uh, well you've got the bug now so that's all that matters <laughs> just whether <laughs> I've got enough hours in the day I think uh, you'll, you'll always find hours in the day for raptors trust me trust me that's what you'll 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 learn that you'll always find time to watch a raptor so okay talk, the hen harrier project the live project just yep. give us a sort of any anyone tuning in who has no idea what it is and what your role was just sort of give us an overview of what the project was and your role in it yeah so yeah so for anybody who doesn't know so a hen harrier is a bird of prey that we should have a lot of in the uk so we should have about five thousand birds in the uk um but we only have about a thousand um, and that's principally due to uh, to the birds being killed um, in association with the way that grouse moors are managed um, so hen harriers are as I say are birds of prey so they will predate on grouse chicks um, which obviously if you're trying to sell people the opportunity to shoot that grouse chick you don't want the hen harrier getting in there first um, so that's kind of the key the key issue really that the project was set up to uh, or, or why why hen harriers are declining, which is what the project was set up to address. Um, so I mean, yeah, really the the aim of the project. So it started in 2014, um, which is kind of yeah long before I really knew um, what a hen harrier was and what the issues were. But it started um, yeah really to try and just get a better understanding of what was happening to the birds. Um, so to try and um, we were doing uh, a lot of kind of direct so nest uh, nest monitoring so working out where the birds were nesting because we knew that people were killing them at nests so we knew you know if you read well you've got Mark Avery on in uh, a couple of days haven't you and if you read his book Inglorious so he he worked with RSPB investigations um, you know during his time there and there's all sorts of awful incidents you know in the book of people doing awful things so going to nest sites and stamping on the eggs stamping on the chicks stamping on the, the the parent bird or you know pouring liquid nitrogen onto the eggs so you know obviously any chick in there would die but you wouldn't see you know if you went to look at the nest it would just look intact um, and so you would maybe just put it down to infertile eggs um, so you know there's all sorts of awful things that people have been doing at the nests of these birds and I should say so for people that don't know Hen harriers nest on the ground um, in, in Heather Moorland. Um, and because they, so the female will incubate on the nest and the male will go off and hunt for food and he will bring it back. And they do this amazing thing called a food pass that I'm yet to see in real life, but hopefully one day. Um, but they basically like in midair, they kind of throw, so they eat things like um, voles and small birds, meadow pipits and things. And the male will kind of throw it to the female, or he kind of throws it anyway, and the female has to try and catch it and they kind of somersault around each other. And it's, yeah, it's like kind of like 3D basketball is how I think about it. Um, and yeah, so so what that means is then, so the female bird then takes the, the food into the nest or close to the nest. And it just means that for a human observer, um, it can be quite easy to locate nests. So that's why, you know, a lot of persecution was focused on the nest sites. Um, so we were, yeah, we were doing monitoring work to try and just identify sites. We would use all kinds of different surveillance methods to see what was going on. Um, but then also so that when the project started, we didn't really know what the birds were doing outside of the breeding season. Because as I say, they're quite visible um, when they're on nests. But outside of that, in the in the... In the winter so i know brian um obviously was doing a lot of wing tagging studies um but we what we were able to do through the project was we were using satellite tags so they're like little backpacks that we put on the birds um and they as, as the name suggests they transmit to the satellites and then you can get a location for where the birds are um which has just revolutionized what we know about their movements um and so so when the project started we had a uh, we were aiming to fit 24 tags um, I think when they wrote the project, I think they'd assumed that that would all happen in a year. Um, but as it, it ended up, you know, being over the full course of the five years um, and we ended up fitting, actually we fitted more than 100 tags, which is, you know, which is fantastic and obviously hugely over target. Um, but, you know, these tags were just, as I say, giving us all kinds of really interesting information about the birds. Um, so we were finding out things. Sorry, I've just realised you asked for a short summary of the project. No, 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 no carry on. This is this I'll is just, all I'll, yeah. I'll just carry on talking about it. But um, I mean, yeah. And for me, so because because of my background is so as I say, I kind of went into um, sort of molecular ecology, and I was doing kind of DNA work. And the reason that we so but I was still looking at dispersal, 
And the reason that we use DNA, so we use genes to look at um, dispersal, so movement of populations. And the reason that we do that is because we can't track an individual. So, you know, with a ladybird, there's no way you can track wh where an individual ladybird goes, or at least not, not with the technology that we've got at the moment. Yeah. So what yeah. you would do is you would look at ladybird populations and you would look at which genes they shared. And the more genes they shared, the more likelihood there is that they're mixing. Because um, obviously, you know, they've got they've got wings. They're kind of they kind of behave like raptors a little bit. I think there's a there's a few similarities there. Um, but yeah, so so for me to be able to actually fit a tag to an individual and see what that individual bird was doing was was brilliant. And you know, and, and there's still a lot of work. So we're still going through um, you know some of the sat tag data, um, and we'll be able to publish that soon. I hope, or at least in the in the next year or so. Um, but we were finding amazing things like. You know, we had so we've had a couple of birds um, that were tagged in Scotland that have spent the winter in Ireland, and so these are birds. You know, so they're coming off the nest. So they um, they fledge kind of like August August time, um, and then so that basically means that they they leave the nest. They start to learn to look after themselves. You know, they're foraging for food by themselves, um, and within you know within a couple of months, these tiny little birds are making enormous journeys across seas to other continents and you know we had one bird who um so it was around halloween time she's called skylar and she she was um tagged in scotland when she was so we we tagged them just before they leave the nest so that they're fully grown um but they're sort of you know easy to catch um and she yeah for like a week i don't know what it was that she just decided to she flew off to northern ireland um flew right across to the west coast in galway and then a couple of days later she was back in scotland and she never went back to ireland so i don't know don't and, and you just don't know what what's caused that like what what is it about her that made her do that um because her mother didn't so we'd, we'd also tagged her mother and her mother didn't do that um, we have had a couple, as I say, a couple of other Scottish birds that have done the same. So we've had a couple of males that have spent time in Ireland over the winter from and, and then come back to Scotland. Um, we've got a bird at the minute um, that he so he was born uh, last year and he went to Spain for the winter. And this that it, that in itself was amazing that this little bird, you know, as I say, coming off the nest, only a couple of months old, flew all the way from sort of central England all the way down to Spain um, and he hung out in Spain all winter one of the team actually you know took himself over there on, on his own holiday in his own time went over there to find this bird um, and just see what he was doing and that was brilliant because then we could hear about you know because when you see the tag data you kind of just get dots on a map and yeah. I mean yeah it's, it's interesting if you like that kind of thing but it doesn't tell you what the what condition the bird's in what they're doing um, and so, yeah, this, this guy that, that one of the team that went out um, in his own time and he kind of came back and he was like, and, and it was great because, you know, this bird was hanging out with, he had another male that he was hanging around with and, um, you know, and he's really kind of settled in with the local, well, I don't know if they were locals, I don't know if they were other birds that had, that had migrated there for the winter. Um, and then he's come back, uh, he's come back to England this year and he's actually on a nest. That's brilliant. You know, you're talking about like a thousand mile journey that this little bird, you know, and he's, what, he's just about a year old now um and he's gone all that way and come back again and he's made it back safely and now he's yeah he's got a female on chicks on a on a nest um which is which is brilliant so you know you get to know all these little these little stories from the tags yeah. um but then obviously then comes the the bad side of it as well um so you know part of the the project was as i say so we knew that these birds were being killed um, principally on, on grouse moors um, illegally because they are you know they do have the highest level of legal protection um, so we knew that that you know not all was rosy with these birds and so part of the so it wasn't the, the main aim for using the tags really was about learning more about the dispersal so it was really a byproduct that so you can see from the the tag data and I've spent you know days and days going through it and you can see you get all kinds of different readings from the tag um, and so you can see when it's performing naturally, but what you do get is you get what's called a sudden stop. And that's where, you know, so you've got this electronic device, you know, in the same way, you know, that you've got, you know, your phone or your laptop or whatever, and you can sort of see if it's starting to play up a bit. Um, but what would happen is it would just suddenly stop transmitting. So we'd be getting really good data. We'd be seeing exactly what the bird's doing and then just suddenly stops. 
and that's you know there's there's plenty of research now that's showing that that's indicative of somebody basically you know messing around with the the tag interfering with the tag um and and you know and, and i mean and even so there was a study published i think it came out last year time's gone a bit weird at the minute but um so the, there was a study published in england um so um that showed that 72% of hen harriers were dying, you know, confirmed or considered to have been illegally killed. And it was 10 times more likely to happen on grouse moors. And that, that was from, from tag data in, in the same way. There was a study before that on golden eagles, um, where again, they'd fitted tags and they were finding that, you know, these tags, so about, I think about a third of the population of golden eagles were being illegally killed. Um, and so, we were we were finding that with our data as well and there's some really you know one of one of the things that i think i reflect on a bit in terms of working in conservation the only time i actually see an animal these days tends to be when it's dead so you don't you know through work anyway you know i mean obviously i do a bit of bird watching and things in my own time but you know and especially through the hen harrier project it's incredibly difficult when the only hen harriers you're coming into contact with are dead ones you know you spend very little time and, and even if you do see a live one you're kind of anxious for it and you know you're worried about what's going to happen um so yeah so we we were finding all kinds of awful things so we we've had um some of our tag birds so so we have um with the investigations team there's a protocol that so the the birds are monitored um pretty much every day um and if we suspect something's happened to them then it, you know we attempt to recover it um and so that because you know part so that the aim for the project really was that we wanted to understand why they were dying um and what proportion really we were losing in in you know suspicious circumstances or so how many of them were being killed um and we just had some awful things where you know so we we found several birds that when we recovered them um so we recovered the bodies and the, there was an x-ray so the vet does an x-ray and there was lead shot in them um, so, you know, we had a few birds where there was lead shot in its leg or in its head, you know, in its skull. Um, so, and that's obviously, you know, in, in some cases, so the vet can can tell whether the bird, you know, whether that's killed the bird or not. Um, and obviously, you know, in some cases that they, they were being shot to death. Um, we had one bird, um, so it, its tag stopped working just before Christmas. Um, and the satellite tags are solar powered. Um, so when when you get towards the winter and the day length starts to get a bit shorter, you do see the battery starts to, you know, it can run down a bit, depending on what the bird's doing and, and how active it is during daylight hours. Um, so you kind of expect them to run down a little bit. So we, we had one, as I say, just before Christmas, that um, two years ago, that um, it looked like that. So we just thought it had died naturally and the, the tag battery looked like it had kind of just, um, so we could see the bird had stopped moving, the battery had run, run down, um, but we couldn't, you know, the guys went out and they couldn't find it. Um, so we kind of just thought, well, well, we'll see if the tag comes back on, we can go and have another look. Um, and, and it did. So in the spring, when the day length started getting a bit longer, the tag came back on um, and this time they, they found it. And when they found it, you know, she had her foot in a trap so she was in a spring trap um, and again so it went straight to the vet so that the vet could tell us you know what what had happened um, and you just you know you get these heartbreaking post-mortems back where the vet just says you know this bird has suffered horrendously before it's died because it's either died from the shock of being you know caught in the trap um, or it's died of starvation because it's got caught in the trap and it couldn't wow. get out um, so, you know, and you're just thinking, well, you know, what if we'd found it, if we'd found it that first time, would we have been able to, you know, could, could, could the vet have saved it? I mean, I know there was one, um, one that Chris Packham did a video of where he, it had got a broken leg and I saw that, you know, that had gone to the vet and they'd attempted to save it. But again, it just didn't, you know, it, the amount of damage when they've got such fine bone structure. Yeah. You know they just and it, and it was awful because they tried everything to save it and they just couldn't um you know so you're seeing all these all these different things and these are birds you know these are birds that we've we've got connections to because we've seen them as chicks you know we've monitored them on the nest we've seen the eggs hatch we've seen them grow up and i do you know i love seeing the little the creepy little hen harrier chicks on the nest because they look so strange especially when they first hatch out and they're all pink with these big black eyes um and they just kind of like they just sit there and 
you know they're really like really really weird little things um and then you know when you watch them and they develop their feathers and they start to move around the nest and you can see the parents looking after them and you know and then eventually the team would go in and they would you know ring them or, or tag them if they were if they were ones we were going to tag and so you've kind of watched them grow up and so it's really devastating sorry I was just going to say on that subject you're talking about the development I just wanted to inter interrupt and yeah, talk yeah. about another aspect of it as well that all does that also that that's it hurts because you also um, link it into public engagement as well and did you do the the public engagement side of things that you did did you link it into schools and, and were kids involved in, in that sort of thing or was was that was that part of the project the that side of thing or not what was the yeah I mean it, it obviously I can't speak for before I joined but when I joined it it was I mean it, it's difficult so within the project one of the things that we were we had to do or we said we were going to do is engage children um, so we had, you know, certain targets for speaking to primary school students, speaking to secondary school students. We also did work with gamekeepers in colleges, which I'll come back to if you remind me. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think for me, as I say, you know, I, I, I had kind of experience of working with primary school children. And it's I can see why on the face of it, when we put the project, you know, when the project bid was put together, it was kind of, well, we're going to go and talk to primary school students in these areas, you know, in Moorland areas, in the special protection areas where the hen harriers are living. And we're going to go and talk to primary school children about it. But it's just, it's incredibly difficult, partly because, you know, these children, some of their parents or their grandparents or their uncles or whoever are gamekeepers themselves and they're involved in management and so they're involved in in some of these things that are happening and I'm not saying you know they're all bad you know they're apparently are, are you know um so it, it I found it incredibly difficult and I think what so what I encourage the team to do and I think you know as I say in, in my time um I encourage the team to kind of take it to a point where we were teaching the kids about hen harriers and and if they would ask and we would sort of explain why they were declining but we wouldn't really hammer it home yeah, because yeah. and at that age it's quite a difficult message as well of like well these things are dying because people are killing them and like you know and 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 you could get quite difficult questions from those communities so I think you know from from my perspective I think it's great to I think at primary level it's great to enthuse children about raptors and, and other species um I think yeah so the the gamekeeping colleges I think that's really for me so for me that was an interesting one and I I think it's been worthwhile. Not everybody shares that view. I think I, I was surprised. Um, so we went into a few different colleges and, and you know, and, and again, I think, you know, being a young woman going into that situation where you've got these, you know, sort of these lads kind of sitting there and they know that you're from the RSPB and yeah. they have an opinion of what they think the RSPB is. And quite often they are, you know, they might be younger than you, but they're bigger than you. Um, and you know and you kind of go into this environment and and I mean we what we did with the the work that we did with them we we just explained the situation to them you know and we said look this is what's happening at the moment and the way that we phrase it so we kind of gave the background and then we just said well let's have a chat about it you know let's have a bit of a, a debate for want of a better word um, so what happens you know what happens if we just carry on with the way things are hen harriers are probably going to go extinct um, is that okay what if we, you know, another option could be that we license grass mower, uh, man, um, grass mowers. Is that, does that help? Does that make it more complicated? What if we ban shooting altogether? Um, so, you know, we would kind of talk through these other options or is there another option that we just haven't thought of? And because, you know, I, I genuinely think that, so it's again, reflecting on my time in conservation, it's funny that, so I, Obviously, the way you have to work your way up, you kind of start in quite a practical role before you are able to get into the more strategic roles. And I, I have always, I always, so the, the role that I have now is quite strategic and I'm really enjoying that. And it, it is quite a lot of brain work, but I think, you know, as you probably realise, that's the kind of thing that I enjoy a bit more. I'm not really built for practical work. I'm too small and I can't carry heavy things. Um, and so I think, it's kind of funny that, so the only people really in terms of the strategic stuff are the people that have worked their way to get there, but they're not necessarily the best, you know, there could be younger people that have, that do have good ideas. And so I'm always, I do genuinely go to them and say, you know, is there something that we haven't thought about? Because really 
genuinely we all just want to fix this in a way that hopefully would work for everybody in an ideal world um and so and, and i think or i felt going to the the students like that and and making them and, and it wasn't you know it, it was true that that we wanted to know what they thought um I felt like they they kind of responded to us a bit better but I mean and one of the things that surprised me you know when you start talking to them because as I say I mean you know I, I just went to a sort of a, an urban comprehensive and gamekeeping wasn't even a thing that I knew about let alone then go and do a course to, to study it and so I was kind of chatting to the, the students and saying well you know why are you why are you doing this course how did you find out about it and you get you get some that are you know well you know my parents or my grandparents or her, you know there's a connection somebody that they know is a gamekeeper but quite a few of them had sort of said oh well I told the, the teacher at school that I liked animals and they told me to go and be a gamekeeper um and you kind of think well that's I, yeah I don't know I don't know that that's necessarily for somebody who's keen on animals maybe it was a bit of naivety about what the role entailed I don't know but for me you know if I said I like animals and somebody said we'll go into this job where you get to kill them all the time I'd be a bit like mm, not really not really sure about that but yeah. yeah I don't know so yeah I mean I thought I quite like that aspect about the project because I think I think I'm safe in saying that I think you know things like Hen Harrier Day and you know and, and probably hopefully there's an audience listening to this but I think it you know in, in terms of the people we speak to it tends to be a bit of an echo chamber and I think if I had to say that the project, in my in my view, could have done anything better, I think maybe engaging with some of those, you know, the actual communities of people that are more involved in these things. Because I think, you know, as I say, Hen Harrier Days and things are great for speaking to like-minded people. And I I do, you know, it is it's a really hard field to work in. Because as I say, the bulk of the species, you know, you're in this because you love these species, but you only see dead ones, and it does get to you. And, you know, I've seen I've seen grown men get really upset, you know, about it. And um, so, it, yeah, I think just being able to, sorry, completely lost track. Um, yeah, I think um, it's, yeah, it's just, it's just hard seeing dead things all the time, isn't it? <laughs> sorry, yeah, I just. Yeah. No, it's all right, don't worry. Uh, it's you're I think you're absolutely right it's something that really interests me I did my master's was in uh, was in anthrozoology so I'm fascinated by the sort of human animal interactions whatever the subject but especially yeah. obviously birds of prey so it does it interests me I'd have I'd have loved to have come in and listened to um young gamekeepers and and tried to I, I think you've got to so make anything work yeah you've got to try and understand the other side mm. a lot of people will, will argue and and i can understand it completely especially all the news that's coming out at the moment um, regarding hen harriers that we're, we're past all that now but yeah you've got like you say even talking to the kids you know that you've got to remember that they've got links into potentially some of them will have yeah. links into this industry and so you've got to be sensitive to that to some extent but it's interesting to hear you say about yeah that you think we should do, the the project could have done more um with that in mind what what achievements what are you what were you really proud of the achievements that that came from um the project obviously it's finished now five years is, yeah. is what what are you really proud of what what is still to come from the project i.e papers to be published and and data to be looked at yeah I mean I think I think what I'm proudest of really is the team and and how everybody worked together I mean yeah there's there's tangible achievements but I think as I say you know coming into that established team and I'm not saying there weren't days where we all hated each other and well maybe not quite that bad but you know there were days where we would have arguments um it wasn't all rosy but but on the whole you know you we knew that we were all working for the same thing and, and as I say, they welcomed me in. They didn't know who I was. They welcomed me in and they seemed to, yeah, we seemed to rub along okay. Um, so I think, yeah, just, and, and as I say, I think for me, the, the contribution of the Raptor workers was huge. So, so this project, so we had about two and a half million pounds for this project, which we, over five years, which we, we spent um, on Hen Harrier conservation. But actually what we've done, so when the project ended, we tallied up um, the contribution of the raptor workers and you know and, and I hate monetizing conservation but it's just the, 
the area that that we're in at the moment is that that's what people respond to so actually when we totted it up the raptor workers themselves had actually contributed like another million pounds um, of work just in terms of you know the travel that they'd done off their own back you know paying for their own fuel to go and monitor these nest sites and and monitor roost sites and you know help us out um, but also the, the hours that they'd put in just sitting on the hillside watching for birds that may or may not turn up, especially, you know, in the north of England, the hen harrier population is so low that you could sit out there for weeks and not see anything. Um, so, you know, just the fact that people were willing, you know, they were willing to do it. Um, so I think, you know, that's something that I think just that that kind of partnership that we built um, that I hope is still going, I'm sure it's still going strong. Um, I think I'm really, really proud of the team um, for everything that they did. I mean, in terms of tangible achievements, yeah. So, um, as I say, we fitted many more satellite tags than we had anticipated, and, and partly that was because of additional contribution. Um, so, organisations like Lush, who um, contributed money towards satellite tags, and then a whole a raft of other sort of funders who who funded smaller amounts um, to pay for them. Um, and as I say, that's really helped us understand where the birds are going and what they're doing. Um, so, so yeah, so we're, we're still working through that data. Um, and as I say, so hopefully we'll, we'll have some scientific papers coming out soon that, because I think it's um, just understanding, I think, so that the, there's obviously the obvious question around, you know, what proportion of them are being persecuted? What land use is it on? You know, do we find a similar thing to, you know, the, the previous paper? Um, that found that high numbers are being persecuted on grassmeadows. So that that part's to come. But I think, yeah, for me, the, the exciting part is around the ecology of these birds and where they're traveling, because, you know, we've, we've got some birds that, as I say, so some birds make these enormous journeys, um, but some of them don't. Some of them stay quite close to home um, and, and trying to understand about where they're flying and where they're going and why are some of them safe? I mean, I think so there's, there's been and we do need to do something about it um so i think yeah that's that's um on that side of things and hopefully helping to protect hem harriers into the future um i mean yeah i, I would hope again so with the, the kind of public engagement side of things um and working with the communities it's it's hard to know it's hard to gauge the tangible impact that you've had over a short period of time but i would hope that you know certainly the people i mean we we spoke to kind of nearly 13,000 people and and that wasn't just you know somebody walking past a stall in a tent that was you know sitting and doing an hour's presentation on or sometimes longer depending on how long I, I went on for but um you know a, a presentation on this is what the situation is these are some of the birds this is what we're learning this is what's happening to them on your you know on your doorstep um so I hope that we've educated more people um as well and i think you know and that's got to help i mean hen harrier day the, the attendance at hen harrier day seems to have been growing and obviously you know this year we've got the first one in wales um we've got more in scotland um so that's kind of the support for that is growing um so i hope that having increased public awareness as, as to what's happening and i think generally and obviously especially it's more acute at the moment but i think generally the population um, in the UK, people are getting more connected to nature and they are more concerned. I think, you know, because coming back to my sort of my early experiences of wildlife, it was very much about wildlife abroad and, you know, and it's about tigers and it's about rhinos and it's about all these big charismatic creatures. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until really that I joined the Hen Harrier Project that I was like, well, hang on a minute, but all of this is going on in this country, but we don't talk about it. We don't focus on our own you know the the mess of our own species and our own ecosystems yeah, um, yeah. because i guess it's far easier to focus somewhere else and to say oh well that can't that country terrible and look what they're doing and they've killed all their tigers and you know and yet we're here doing the exact same thing with our hen harriers so yeah it's, and it, it's interesting you know you're talking before about you've never seen you've never seen a food pass as well and it is this stuff happens in the UK. It's I mean, obviously there's not many pairs, there's many pairs, but it is, it's wonderful. But you know, even watching a male male hen harrier sky dancing or a golden eagle or sky dancing or yeah, a barn owl, you are right. I I'm a big fan of 
you know, the UK's got some amazing wildlife out there. You just need to yeah. scratch the surface a little bit. So yeah, I know. I just and that's kind of then what makes it so the the only problem I think with working in conservation is it ruins the outdoors for you because then you know then when you are outside and and so because I knew all this stuff about Merland and actually we should have had all these birds of prey that we didn't. So then when you're out for a walk, you can't even really enjoy it because you're just thinking, oh, do you know, there should be golden eagles or, I mean, I've been quite excited, although obviously haven't been able to see them, but I know there's been white-tailed seagulls um, up in Yorkshire and um, this year. And so, you know, to see those just flying, they're enormous birds, you know, like two metre wingspan. Um, they're huge things to see in the sky, let alone, yeah, things like golden eagles, hen harriers, all sorts of things that we should be seeing. And anybody, everybody should be able to see them. It shouldn't just be, you know, a few people up in the hills that, that get the opportunity to see them. So Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm, I'm just looking, I'm just conscious of time. That's all. I don't want to keep you all evening. Um, we're, uh, yeah, we, we've done a bloody good stint there. <laughs> Um, one question I you probably because you've watched I know you've watched a few of the videos I always ask them so I know we, to be honest Kathleen you've been fantastic that the information and and the the frankness of of you know talking about getting into conservation and your work in conservation is just exactly one of the reasons why I've done these interviews because I want people to see um and and learn about this sort of thing but I, as I say I asked Ruth this and I've asked most people this if you were to give one person a piece of advice then um for getting into conservation go on if we've, if we've not already covered it what what would your one bit of advice be it can be the simplest thing if you want i think it i think it's just to keep trying i think yeah just not to give up because eventually an opportunity will come i think i mean yeah i think I, I mean, I always try, I think because I had such a hard fight to get in and even now I don't feel like I'm fully in, I still feel like I'm on the on the edges of it and could be chucked out at any moment. Um, but I, you know, I try and help other people to get in as well, um, you know, because I've been trying to think about, you know, especially at the moment with the pandemic and a lot of people are losing jobs and things. And I think, you know, if there's anything I can do to help or if there are people out there that want to get into conservation and they want help or they just want to have a chat about interview prep or whatever it is I'm quite happy to to help support people I mean I can only give my own personal you know I'm not a careers advisor I can only give them my own personal views and experiences but I think yeah don't give up and I think the other thing if I'm allowed two pieces I think is just put you put yourself forward don't wait as I say don't wait for opportunities to come to you because you'll be waiting a long time I think find you know somebody who's doing something that you're interested in and 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 they might not want to talk to you they might not want to do things but you know they might not want to help you out but don't give up because somebody will you know there's, there's a lot of really lovely people in conservation um and we're all you know we're all up against it because as i say there aren't enough resource there isn't enough resource to save everything we want to save and that's just something that we have to live with on a daily basis but somebody will help you there will be an opportunity somewhere um and yeah at the very least i think you know if you can volunteer as i say it doesn't need to be exotic volunteering in in countries it could be as easy as you know working with with animals somewhere or working with people doing a bit of community engagement whatever skills you can get um because there are so many different roles in conservation um that that you know there's anything anything really i think is is helpful just to just to keep going and keep building brilliant excellent that's perfect right um thank you very much for your time kathleen it wasn't too painful hopefully <laughs> you've been wonderful for for someone who said they were you know you you, you were nervous and you weren't sure that was spot on and you've done 75 minutes so <laughs> that was and i've hardly had to say a word so that was brilliant it was absolutely fantastic so thank you very much well, thank you for the invitation and yeah hopefully people are listening so thank you to them as well and yeah thank you <laughs>